This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. I feel like in, in 15 years, I'm going to still be introducing you the same way. <laughs> I need to come up with something new, but right yeah, now it's, it's just it's working for me, so... How you doing, bro? Man, I'm so pumped. That New was York such is a crazy. Good conversation, like I said before, the energy here as we record live is off the chain. So much fun. Thank y'all for having us. It's so much fun. Shout out to New York. All right, so we got some of your questions. Uh, I mean, we got hmm. some intelligent, informed folk here. Some intelligent people. They gonna really here. try to stump us. Okay, let's go through some of these questions, and we'll try to keep it as short as possible so we can get through as many as possible. Um, The first one, it says, I think I saw Kanye say he was trying to talk about how oppression in its worst forms ends up being internalized by the oppressed, a colonization of the mind of sorts. Does that hold water in your mind? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So oppression, and let's talk just specifically about racism as an example, it hurts both the oppressed and the oppressor, right? So the oppressor holds these toxic ideas, holds these ideas of, of dehumanization and subhumanization. But meanwhile, the oppressed, it's pervasive. As a black person in America, you can't escape the negative messaging about black people. You can't escape at least observing the phenomenon of associating thug and black person, right? Or the assumption of a threat or the assumption of criminality with being black. And then every time that happens to someone else or someone around you, that idea gets reinforced. And over time, you can absorb a sense of your own inferiority, Hmm. even though it's based on a myth. Uh, Or in order to survive, you adopt the oppressor's ideas because that's how you maneuver in society in order to get along. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, it can, it can infect people. And this is where, you know, our sister Akemini Uwan says, you have to decolonize your mind. We've absorbed yes. ideas that mm-hmm. are the colonizer's ideas and don't dignify us. And we have to intentionally purge that from our thought and action. Yeah, I would agree. I think as we talk about freeing our minds and free thinking and things of that nature, I think that's, that's well and good. I would just caution that when people when people say free your minds or decolonize your mind or, you know, don't have a mental slavery, often it's sort of connected with capitalism or it's sort of connected with some sort of financial rise in class. It's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but Kanye to me doesn't seem like the type of he seems like the type of person that's trying to increase the tax bracket. And is trying to do more as far as business is concerned. And so he thinks in those terms. And I think there's more than just money. There's more than just financial. There's more than just business that you have to think about. So for me, if Kanye is talking about a colonization of the mind, then he should read more books. (laughs) 
lead the way. Like he's, I'm not, I'm not being snarky. Yeah, I'm saying he really himself. does not. He says, I don't read books. I just watch TED talks and watch YouTube, and that's not, that's not going to cut it. You know, lead the way in the decolonization of our minds by reading and being slower to speak. So it, it would, it would carry more weight for me from someone who's actually walked that walk. Um, Jamar. Great question for you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, this Jamar, is, great, 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 great question for you, brother. Um, how can a predominantly majority population group make their culture not draining toward minorities? <laughs> Million dollar question. I mean, it depends on the context. I suppose um, most people immediately jump to a church congregation context. And um, I'm on the tip of when it comes to racism, we've been playing at the edges. Conferences, panels, discussions, even representation, hiring that one person of color on staff. That's good, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, not saying don't do that, but oh, yeah. the history of racism in the American church is such that we have to flip tables. So if you want your congregation to not be draining <laughs> and... Um, Uh, detrimental to people of color I mean honestly a lot of churches have to dissolve and reconstitute themselves with anti-racism at the core because you can't you can't do that as an add-on it's it's not going to work in in the deepest sense right Mm -hmm. you can improve that way but there's always going to be a ceiling that you hit but I think we actually have to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel to say that this is part and parcel of what it looks like to be the kingdom and the people of God. And since we didn't start that way, we, we, we actually have to stop, hmm. take everything off. And I don't know what that means. If, if that means, you know, dissolving the congregation and doing a new core group or electing new elders. I don't know what it means to flip the table in your context. What I do know is that what we've been doing as far as trying to be nicer to people of color is not working. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) This is interesting. Comments on uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article about Kanye. Is there truth to the idea of him wanting white freedom? I don't, I, yeah. Well, I first say that, you know, someone like ta thinks in far deeper terms than we do. And so it's far beyond us and a lot of understanding. I will say that it is telling when someone pointed this out um, in a podcast I was listening to. Uh, it, really, it really struck me strange. It says, whoever Kanye makes an analogy to as far as himself and kind of his advancement, it's always someone who is like a white businessman or a white billionaire. Mm. And so it's just, it's just telling who he points to and says, I am, you know, Walt Disney or I am Andy Warhol. I am, you're like, okay. I mean, you know, why is it that you're pointing to that? And I think there's a desperation in him uh, to be accepted and approved in ways that maybe he hasn't been before. And, and one of my friends uh, was talking to me about this and he was like, man, Kanye's been off. I'm like, what you mean? He's like, yeah, he's been off. You know, just go back a few albums, listen to the stuff, because everything that he would talk about as far as justice and consciousness would be in terms of himself, but not in terms of a collective. Right, right, so right. So at right. some point, he stopped talking about the collective and he focused on himself as an individual. So it became kind of this self serving, you know, egotism, even in the midst of talking about these matters of equality and justice. And so 
it, it, it puts me in a position of saying maybe we should think about what he's really aiming for and going for. But, you know, it, it, we didn't say this in the last, but hopefully it's understood. But, I mean, we pray for Kanye, man. We don't yeah, want, absolutely. The, want that brother's mind to be right, you him, know. Yes. We don't want him to come back so we can listen to his music. Like, we want, right. <laughs> we want his mind to be right. We want him to be healthy. We want him to be whole. We want That's him right. to be a good husband and flourish. a good father and to flourish, you know, as God created him to. Um, next question. This is for Jamar Tisby. I just wanted to clarify Jamar's statement. Did you say yes to canceling Jonathan Edwards? <laughs> There's more to the question. I just want to leave oh, that goodness. out there. Okay. Because our small group has been talking about how to reconcile reading and quoting the work of Puritans who are also slave owners. How can people that we look to as spiritually enlightened be so blind to glaring sin, to the glaring sin of slavery in their own lives? Should we cancel the works of these so-called Puritans? It's a <laughs> so great called. question. Yes. It's a great question. Um, I don't have a word from the Lord on this. <laughs> but you I better could, get one quick. <laughs> I could just tell you what Jamar's doing. Um, so I think there are levels of cancellation. So I do not... <laughs> I do not quote... <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, I do not okay. cite his work any longer, even okay. though I went to a reformed seminary sure. and he was quoted all the time and read his works, right? Um, I don't do that because how can I be up here talking about racial justice and all these things and just be like, oh, but this dude's cool, you know, he's got great things to say, except for this little slavery part, right? That just doesn't fit what I feel called to do personally. Um, I think in an educational setting, like a college or a seminary, uh, we need to have context. So the, the, the big rub for me and a lot of other black people in school was that they would quote slave owners and never say they were slave owners. And so you had to find out some back channel way right. Right. that this okay. person didn't even believe I was worthy of my own freedom. And so it was like, why didn't you tell us? At least if you told me up front, I could have that in mind. And honestly, it's, it's easier to access the other parts if you know what the, what the problem is. But it felt like in a lot of settings they were trying to hide that. Or even worse, they didn't care. They were indifferent to that fact, like it wasn't a big deal. Or it was, but not a big enough deal that they wouldn't still teach and quote him. And so I think in an academic setting, you need to be very careful on the front end, letting people know. And I also think from a pedagogical standpoint, we, we, gotta, we gotta stop calling racism a blind spot because it conveys the idea that this is just this small little thing they don't get right. No, this is foundational. You're talking about the, bro the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. You're talking about our equality before God. And, you know, it's a blind spot. I, I, I think there's a problem in the foundation if you're okay and own slaves. And so I think from an academic standpoint, now in a church Bible study standpoint, I think there's utility to knowing about someone like Edwards. Like, you should know that, you know, he's considered by many uh, to be a great American theologian. You don't have to agree with that, but it's good to know. Um, but the way I handle it is... There are so many other theologians out there whose work we can access where we don't have to compromise and say they were a slave owner or they supported the dehumanization of people of color. So, so it's actually an opportunity for us to go out and explore other scholars and other thinkers 
um, who, can, who can perhaps broaden our perspectives. Yeah, when I was growing up, I went to a, a Christian school, and going to a Christian school, I was taught history from a very slanted perspective. A conservative Christian school. Yes, a very conservative <laughs> Christian school. And um, it was interesting because the only thing I knew about Jonathan Edwards was that he preached the most famous sermon of all time, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that he was one of the, he was one of the leaders of, the, of one of the Great Awakenings, and that he um, was one of the most brilliant, this is what they said in the textbook, he was one of the most brilliant minds in American history. And that's it. And so now, whenever I heard Jonathan Edwards' words after hearing that year after year after year, whenever I heard someone quote Jonathan Edwards, my mindset is one of the most brilliant minds in American history. Mm. And so what I'm thinking now is I'm accepting what he's saying on face value, not questioning it, questioning it not hearing the context, nothing. I'm just accepting it because someone told me that's how you approach it. That's right. And so when we think about it, are we setting up you know, if you quote something or if you say something, are you hiding a core part of who they are that someone will find out later and it will seem to be a betrayal to them? That's right. Right. So are you are you unintentionally placing an obstacle and a stumbling block to the gospel? I think it's it's important in my context. I couldn't quote Jonathan Edwards because it would it would be a stumbling block. It's not to say he's never said anything valuable. I just couldn't use him. And there are a whole bunch of Black scholars who, who are comparable and who have just as much um, wealth of knowledge and wisdom that I could quote. You and know? here's so another little aspect I'll add to that, is when it comes to race, can we recognize the particularities of that offense? Right? Like This is not like every other offense because not every other offense had slavery at its core. And so America's particular history with the dehumanization of black people means that when it pops up throughout history, both past and even in the present, it's, it's almost in a different category because of the way that it was so pervasive and is still so pervasive in America. So I just add that because there are, I mean, unless you're quoting Jesus, you're quoting a sinner. So how do we differentiate between Bro, you, Edward's you sin? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm reading questions. And he's <laughs> I didn't mean to go long on that, but like, how do you differentiate? And right. I just think that, that, that racism has a special and, and particularly heinous place in American history that we have to still treat uh, in a particular way. I was, I was smiling because there's, these are some great questions yes. here. This one I love. What makes Kanye's recent behavior worthy of cancellation and not the misogyny mm. that Ye and so many rappers have displayed in their music or personal lives shown in the past? Should we have canceled Jay-Z or 50 Cent or Dr. Dre? A phenomenal question. Phenomenal question. Um, and it was something we were going to get to in the episode. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> we just ran out of time. I would say... Um, I would say absolutely. I think hip hop has to reckon with its misogyny. And I think that we shouldn't give people a pass. And misogynoir. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, particularly as it relates to black women. We shouldn't give hip hop a pass. I-, I would say that Kanye's cancellation does not seem to be on the basis of morality. I don't think hip hop is canceling Kanye because of morality. I think hip hop is canceling Kanye because he lacks authenticity. And so I think hip-hop 
value something more than the higher moral grounds, and this is an indictment of hip-hop, by the way, but I think hip-hop values something higher, more than the higher moral grounds, they value the higher authentic ground. And so if you're authentic, if you're telling your story, if you're, you're an accurate representation of your neighborhood and of your context, then anything goes. And I think that's what we're dealing with as far as Kanye's people perceive him to be inauthentic. But hip-hop, um, actually, I mean, if you're going through your playlist, you should cancel probably a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, let's, let's talk about it from this standpoint, because I think it's easy to talk about um, the sexual references and the obscenity and the profanity. But let's talk about how hip-hop aligns itself with abusers and protects them. That's a massive problem in hip-hop. Um, for example? For example, um, you know, Dr. Dre. And specifically, the heinous acts of domestic violence that he committed that were shoved under the rug, that people knew about and didn't say anything about. Oh, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's Dre. You know how Dre is. Mm. Kendrick Lamar recently came to the defense. And y'all know I love Kendrick. But he came to the defense of a young rapper and an artist who was uh, guilty of domestic violence on his pregnant girlfriend. I mean, he's saying, oh, I'm going to boycott Spotify because Spotify doesn't want to play his music and got his music put back on Spotify. I mean, that's a problem, you know. And so I think we have to sit back and it's one thing to say it's hard to cancel people because of education or because of what they contributed as far as the edification of our spiritual lives. It's another thing to say it's hard to cancel people because they entertain me. Mm. And if you're not canceling people because they got nice music, well, then we have to rearrange our priorities. You can let anybody go as far as music. Um, you should, at least. Any thoughts? Good word. <laughs> <laughs> let me address this one. Tyler, now that the new trailers have dropped uh -oh. and are fire, should we cancel you? No. No. Should we cancel you for your past blasphemous comments about Netflix Luke Cage? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you come to this podcast? <laughs> I think that was both. Um, yeah, you like them trailers? Y'all like them trailers? I know Luke Cage is kind of a touchy topic. I know we're in New York. Oh, no, um, yes. Yeah, man, I can't get with it. I feel like there are certain things, you know those things that you're like, yo, I have to watch this because it's not that I'm enjoying it, but it's like so bad that it's like, yo, how bad is can this bad get? Film? <laughs> It's that bad. I, I'll just say this. I, I, think, I think if they're going to do the black exploitation thing and go over the top, they need to go and do it and not be like, he's cool. And it's black exploitation. Hey, man, I'm Luke Cage. If you want to get me, come find I'm like, man, come on, bro. Just you're dope by yourself. You don't have to do all that over the top stuff. It's just a personal preference thing for me. It's not a heaven or hell issue. It's cool. <laughs> if you like Luke Cage. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I, we probably, Bo has banned me from talking about Luke Cage, but this was a fan question, so this is one of those things. I'm going to tell you, man, I, I just, I think, and for those of you who didn't hear our season one review, I think the problem with Luke Cage was they tried to do too much with the character. They tried to make him too much. They tried to make him an everyman. So he was critiquing the hood, and he was a ladies' man, and he was reading deep books, and he was formerly incarcerated, and he was fighting everybody, and he had a bulletproof vest on, and he, I'm like, bro, like, 
I mean, can he just be dope and can he just stop bad guys and that's it? Like, we don't need a philosophy of Luke Cage book. I mean, see, y'all got me on it again, man. (laughs) I don't know why you're limiting our people, though, bro. I don't know why. (laughs) Okay, uh, a couple of more. We'll get out of here. Uh, Jamar, when you confront and criticize behavior that is disrespectful of the Imago Dei and your political opponents, sometimes your political allies misunderstand and accuse you of tone policing i.e. your allies may not appreciate the value you put on the Imago Dei. How do you respond? <laughs> um, so the allies don't get it? Yeah, so let's say we critique something that, um, let's say if there was someone in the White House that we didn't like or that maybe has made dehumanizing statements, yeah. just hypothetically. Let's just say we critique him and then people say, no, you shouldn't, you're, you know, they critique you critiquing them. And they say you're tone policing, political correctness. I mean, if it's online, honestly, I don't engage much. I engage very little. Uh, but if it's an issue with my clarity, then I have to go back and be clearer. So, you know, if, if there is a legitimate, like, I said one thing, but they thought I meant another, if it's simply, a you know, wording or I didn't define a term, I'll go back and I'll clarify. But when people interact sort of oppositionally on social media, they're not looking to be persuaded. They're looking to be right. And I already disagree with you, so we don't need to have this conversation right here. (laughs) Awesome. Um, (laughs) Great. Uh, Some folks, wow, this is a deep question. Some folks often overrate championships. How important are championships in the discussion of who stands as the greatest of all time, MJ or LeBron? What? I mean, I, look, man, we I gotta say my word, homie. <laughs> We've got to accept a, a, a certain level of, of illogical nature of this, right? Like, it's not just based on facts, obviously. I'm from yeah, the Chicago oh yeah, sure. area. For I was sure. growing up during the six peat of the Bulls. Sure. I remember my family stopping everything to watch Jordan on the court. Like, you're not going to convince me that LeBron, no matter what the stats are, is the GOAT because there's oh, still an emotional connection. emotional appeal. Huh? I, the part of it is because that's part of what makes a GOAT in my book. It's not just the numbers you post. It's the effect you have, right? And so MJ made, I mean, MJ made the game. Uh, yeah, no, but I would say that <laughs> he didn't make the game. In the 1990s on forward has had his fingerprint on it. From the Air Jordans to yeah, jumping yeah, from the free course, throw line absolutely. and dunking to multiple championships in a row as like a franchise. Like that's, the web connects back to Jordan somehow. <laughs> I'll say this, man. I think, you know, what LeBron is doing right now is incredible. It is. And I think, you know, it should be enough for us just to acknowledge him and, and just say that he's, he's the greatest that we've seen in a very, very, very long time. I mean, this now, series right now is oh, yeah. making a really good case for him. Now, in the comparison between MJ and Bron, I'll just simply say it's really what you place what you place an emphasis on. That's right, yeah. It's just really what you place an emphasis on. So if you like great all-around play, you're going to like LeBron. If you like someone who makes his teammates better, you're going to like LeBron. If you like someone who has an array. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, Here that's true. Go. Here we go. Okay. Why, why are y'all uh, laughing? That's right. true. I was being serious. You Jordan yet. No, no, no. I just said two things. That's it. Just two. If you like the dominance of will and just a lack of letting your opponent breathe, like completely shutting down the game, 
then you like Jordan. If you like someone who can score from an array of positions and do really anything on the offensive end, then you like Jordan. I'm just saying it's what, it's what you do, and both of them cross over, but it's a completely different league, you know? It's a completely different league. I think they're, they're now, based upon LeBron's um, playoffs this year, they're probably 1-1-A. They're very close. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. closer than they've ever been. Yeah, I would agree with and that. And I think you can flip them either way. I think you can flip them either way based upon your preference. Much respect. Much respect. Yeah, no. <laughs> you, yeah. You, you didn't give much respect. All right, one, one or two more, um, and then we'll get out of here. Just As a matter of fact, one more. Um, let's say, say more about real reconciliation versus false understanding of rec- reconciliation that you reference. Unpack that a little bit more. Real reconciliation versus false. Uh, we talk about Emerson and Smith's Divided by Faith all the time. Royalties, please. Anybody? Um, so, but, but their concept is, is, is extremely helpful. So they talk about a, a religious cultural toolkit that white evangelicals as a group have. And it is one that is not just individualistic because sort of Western civilization is individualistic. Their point is that white evangelicals are even more individualistic than the general population. And the way that translates into racial reconciliation is an emphasis on the relational aspect of, uh, of race relations. And so if everything's individual and everything's relational, then if we go and get a cup of coffee or I have you to my house for dinner or we have a reconciliation Sunday and we're building those relationships, then we're doing what is necessary for racial reconciliation. What that leaves out is the systemic and structure, structural aspects of racism. And so what a robust reconciliation would look like is, number one, it's a process, right? You don't just do reconciliation. What you do is you tell the truth first. Right? So, so the church in America really needs a Truth and Reconciliation Commission hmm. to talk about, finally be honest about, the ways that Christians in this nation have constructed and perpetuated a racial hierarchy. Because we've never been honest with that, which is, here's another soapbox, but I won't get on it, which is why we still are arguing about Confederate monuments and symbols. We haven't been honest about this, even in the church. And so the process, you've got to tell the truth and say what happened. But then you've also got to say not just I'm sorry, but how can I make it better? How can I fix it? So there has to be some sort of repair. And this is where some of these structural solutions come in. And money's not out of the question. Because you've got to think. Just say it. Just say reparations, bro. I ain't afraid to say it. I ain't afraid to say it. Go ahead. I mean, we there, so... On a basic level, slavery was an economic system of free labor for the enslaver. And so for centuries, black people labored without a paycheck. They labored under oppression and never got anything for it. And so now you have a wealth gap where white people have 16 times the wealth of black people. And that's not because black people aren't good with money. It's because we never had it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like... What is the way aside from what the government does? What are church folk gonna do now that you know how bad it was and what we did? We just be like, man, that was bad. Uh, Let's get our choirs together and sing a song. (laughs) That's reconciliation, light. So if we want a robust, and I mean, do that, do that. That I mean, yeah, yeah, let's do. It's necessary but not sufficient. So a more robust reconciliation would 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 would. 
look at policies, would look at laws, would look at uh, structures and patterns that perpetuate racial inequality. One last question that I have for you and someone else asked it as well. But tell us about your book, brother. You got a book oh. coming out. Yeah. You're big time. Pre-New York Times bestselling author. Yeah, right. Book, <laughs> Color of Con- That's up to y'all. <laughs> man, come on, man. You got to have faith in the people. You gotta I said it's up to them. Yes. Okay. So right, tell um, us about Color of Compromise. Yeah. So, I mean, all through this, I've been talking about history, the American church and racism. And the book is called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity and Racism. And we call it The Truth About It because that's where reconciliation has to start. And so what this book is, is a historical survey from colonial era up to the present. And I talk about sort of race in the church in the era of Black Lives Matter. And it's just a sampling of the ways, my, my, my point is, not that Christians sort of passively absorbed the racist culture around them, but they were actual active participants in creating that culture. And they made intentional decisions when they could have gone another way and they could have supported the dignity and humanity of black people. They chose not to for whatever reason. And this happens again and again and again. It happens with big name figures who we'd all recognize. It happens with regular folks in the pews. It happens with denominations and networks and parachurch ministries. And it's happened all along. But it's a book that tells a story about the past, but it's really about the future. Hmm. Because what I hope happens is that once you've gone through each of these historical periods and see the way the American church has failed when it came to race, that you would look at it and be like, how can I not do something? How can I not be vigorously active in fighting racism? How can I move from from being non-racist to anti-racist? And so it ends with a few practical steps, reparations would be one of them, that typically would seem outlandish or too radical. But to me, once you know more of the history, you're like, there, there's, there's nothing radical, too radical to repair the damage of racism. Hmm. You know what I mean? So that's, that's coming out January 2019. But really, please pray. Like, I honestly, like, number one, just to get it done as, as I'm working on this degree and then number two, like I've already seen uh, the, the, the backlash and the pushback yeah. because mm-hmm. we're hitting on all of the cultural idols from the Confederacy to, uh, you know, right wing politics uh, to, um, you know, particular theologians like Edwards, who are heroes. Uh, it, it leaves none of those big rocks unturned or untouched. And there are a lot of people out there who um, do not want to to have this knowledge out there. And so it's, it's, a, it's spiritual warfare we're engaging in. Well, thank you, brother, for doing that work. We appreciate it. And thank you, New York, yes. for being an amazing audience. As we, as we close out the show, um, that'll be the end of the show. But I just want to recognize, thank all of you for coming out. But I just yes. want to recognize any pastors in the house. So if you're a pastor of a particular church, if you'd stand up. Um, we'd like to, to recognize you. Yes. Appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you. I just want to encourage our pastors. It means so much that you guys would come out. And I just want to encourage you to, to stay on the wall. Yes. Um, to continue doing what God has called you to do and to be faithful, to be truthful, um, to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And we appreciate what you're doing. We couldn't do what we do in, in our podcast if not for faithful men who have 
uh, committed themselves and faithful women who have also committed themselves to, Ladies, to thank leading. Thank you so much. Yeah. So you thank you guys up. so much. Lord have mercy. So and Jamar, shout out to our team. team. Yeah. Yes. Come on up here. Adam, Bo, Elodie, and Abby. Come on. I just want to make sure you know and see the faces of the people who make this work all the time. So Adam's new to the team. He's helping us with our creative energy. Bo, you know and are familiar with. He's producing. Elodie is our managing editor. So any writers out there, connect with her before you leave. And Abby makes the whole thing flow. She is our um, administrator. And honestly, this is actually the first time we're meeting in person. It's been a virtual relationship so far. So I'm glad to meet in the flesh. So from the pastor, Mike. And Aaron James, we miss you, brother. Our local pastor in residence who drops fire, melts the microphone every time he gets on. Um, so from the past, the mic and the witness team, thank you so much, New York yes. City. Have a great evening. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.